0: is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal business investment or tax advice all opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of rcm alternatives their affiliates or companies featured due to industry regulations participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past their potential profits and listeners are reminded that managed futures commodity trading and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses as such they are not suitable for all investors
1: Welcome to The Hedged Edge by RCM Ag Services, where we're getting out of the field and onto the mic to bring you weekly market updates, commentary from commodity experts, and monthly interviews with the biggest names in agribusiness. Welcome to The Hedged Edge by RCM Ag Services. I'm your host, Jeff Eisenberg. In dreaming up the idea to start an agriculture podcast, I listened to dozens of other podcast pioneers before me talk about everything from USDA reports to agronomy to technical innovations shaping the agriculture landscape. The Hedged Edge promises to include many of these topics, but to do so from a perspective of managing risk related to your business, your business's bottom line, and the bottom line to all involved. Our goal is to provide value to the world commodity markets while turning a profit. For our first guest, we're cutting straight to the top, as in cotton and options trading. And we're not talking to any old expert, we're talking to the king of cotton, emperor of options. Not sure, Ron, you're really gonna like this, Ron Lawson. Ron has over four decades of agriculture risk management experience,
2: and we're happy to have him here with us today. Welcome, Ron. Well, yeah, you make me feel a little old with that introduction. Um, I don't feel old, but I may look old. Uh, yeah, started in agriculture, grew up in agriculture, went to school at UC Davis. Um, I wrote my own major, Livestock Production Management. They didn't have anything like that at the time, so I penned it and put it together, and I got my bachelor's there. Uh, proceeded to go work for McCormick-Shilling Spice Company, of course. Uh, nothing to do with cattle at all, but... I uh, was a field manager and I ran their uh, raw materials uh, in the field yeah, we had about 90,000 acres of onions, 40,000 acres of garlic, and then moved into the plant to run the raw materials received, poached away by Christopher Ranch to help run their garlic operation uh, way back when, you know, it was helped start the garlic festival, moved on uh, to work for Merrill Lynch. And that's an interesting uh, transition. And, and most people won't realize this and may not even care. But you can only grow garlic in the same soil once every four years. Uh, there's a nematode a root stem nematode that, inf- that gets, infects the soil, if you will. So you've got to rotate the crops. So we would grow corn, wheat, uh, onions, and then garlic. And in the off years, the corn, the wheat, whatever we were growing would need to be hedged. And that's when I learned to cut my teeth on hedging, uh, using futures in the market. Well, when uh, I left the I left the dirt and went to uh, wear a suit and work for Merrill Lynch in the San Jose office. Um, this was at a time uh, when high tech was booming. We literally had guys walk in the door, and the broker of the day would get that person sit down and say, "Yeah, I got a company I need to take public." And the likes of Steve Jobs and these other guys would walk in. And the little San Jose office of Merrill Lynch had more IPO origination than any office outside of New York or London. It was a wild time. It was a great time. I was uh, brought on to take over a a futures training desk. Uh, I opened a few very, uh, very visible, well-known names in the cotton world, um, one of which uh, everybody wears their jeans. And uh, they said, well, geez, if you can do that out of San Jose, we're going to move you to Los Angeles where our cotton desk is the older fellow, the German fellow named Klaus Sunder and Klaus was the cotton King. <laughs> and, um, oh, you he, took over his name now. That's good. I like that. Yeah. So he, now you're the I, king. I hooked in with, with Klaus. Uh, he retired. Uh, I ended up as the mm-hmm. heading up the cotton desk, the regional sales manager for Merrill in the Western States. Uh, we managed everything. I oversaw everything from the Mississippi to the Pacific and then uh, Merrill, Made a transition, and it's similar to what we're seeing a lot of today. They got out of the brokered futures business and went into over-the-counter, OTC-only swaps uh, through their uh, capital markets division. And so I moved on. Uh, went to head at a prudential desk, uh, their cotton desk. Uh, they got bought by Wacovia. Wacovia didn't want to have a futures operation. So I started my own company, Steadfast Futures and Options. Along the way, uh, with my partner, Bill O'Neill, who was the head of Merrill Lynch Futures Research, uh, we started Logic Advisors. It's a Lawson O'Neill Global Institutional Commodity Advisor. So uh, we write research on a daily basis. It goes out around the world to uh, the biggest cotton players, metals. Uh, bill handles the financials, the uh, interest rates, currencies, metals. I handle the agricultural products. So my cotton letter is kind of one of those must reads anymore. Uh, Goes out in the morning through the RCMA group to growers, uh, and then in the afternoons to a a little bit of a higher level uh, on the pecking order uh, to hedge funds, uh, commodity banks, merchants. And uh, it's just, you know, one of those things after a while you do it so long, after 38 years, it just kind of becomes, you know, right in stride. You just produce it, talk about it, get it out to people, and hopefully they read it. Daily so routine, yeah, right, and you're doing yeah. that all out of the
1: office there in in Sonoma. But you're your partners, you've got partners. You've got uh Bill Bill O'Neill who uh, writes the economic piece, and I've been following now for quite a while. He's been spot on. I mean, he's nailed these markets. He's uh yeah, you he's know, a he's the a wily, he's the
2: king of uh, the global macro. Let's 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 yeah. On. Yeah. He's the wily old cat who's uh, been doing this for so long. Yeah. And back, you know, we can say this now. It seems like forever. Back in the day, when you could actually go into Manhattan, he uh, he, yeah. lives in, uh, he lives in he lives New Jersey, and be on on TV because he was the guy that you know they would bring on the Bloomberg CNBC, and he has this this broad scope of commodity understanding. So whether you want to talk about copper or uh, the ten-year note. Uh, looking at you know currencies, he's got a good oversight of that. And, um, and I'll tell you, that's it's part of our, our, our presence in the industry. Gone are the days when you can be a specialist in a commodity, only that commodity and nothing but that commodity. There's too many other cross currents that have to be followed. Having Bill's side-by-side research keeps us on top of the things that people may not necessarily be looking at for a particular commodity. Right. And cash flow right now is one of those things. And we're all over that for people to talk uh, talk about when the Fed is telling everybody they want inflation, we're pumping money into, you know, liquidity into the global economic space. You just go back to your college uh, economics 101, macroeconomics, right? When you have excess funds chasing the same number of goods, that's inflationary. Then that's what we have going on right now. There's so much money searching for alpha, trying to find a return, that they've discovered commodities, and now commodities are in favor because how much more leverage, how much more money do you want to put into a stock market, uh, given the current macro environment? So having Bill on board, uh, it, you know, on a daily basis keeps our keeps our head pointed straight. And we also Peter Eggly, uh, who's one of the you know renowned cotton leaders in the world. He's one of the guys that uh, everybody talks about at the conventions and listens to. He's Mike on board. Gotten- Plexi, yeah, he's the, he's on the board of Plexus, and he's the, one of the top risk managers in the world. So, we've we've got a a good generalist, uh, we've got a, a highest specialist out there, and then I'm kind of the guy in the middle that are uh, trying to put the pieces together on the future side as well as on the research side. And yeah, I think uh, I think what you guys are
1: doing is is, is spot on, and uh, you're really the team you put together is is phenomenal, and. The reality is, as you've as you mentioned, you've got uh, the generalists and yourself also completely engaged in not just cotton, but understanding of what's going on across the global landscape of all the commodities, because each one of them has a, a push and pull tied to, uh, uh, tied to each other. You know, should we plant more cotton? Should we, you know, based upon the price of corn and soybeans and what's going on in China, and uh, you know, of all the people I've talked to in recent times, I feel like you know you've also got a pulse of the export market and a sense of what's going on there and what really is happening on the ground in China. You know, I think it's kind of interesting if you could maybe share some uh, you know your your perspective
2: on um, you know what what is going on on on, on that side of the world. You know, one thing one thing I'm 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 uh, I, I try and get across to people is cotton as a, as a commodity is one of the best and longest leading economic indicators there is. And it's simply because it takes more, a, a greater length of time to go from conception to consumption, if you will, right? And along that array, you've got you've to pay for insurance and interest rates and energy and transportation and you know the insurance, you weave it, you cut it, you dye it, you sew it, you ship it. You move. So it's it's subject to so many different cross sections of the global. That sounds economy. like the nine months my wife was pregnant. A lot yeah, exactly. of cutting that's and sewing and spending of money and lots of stuff going on. Yeah, that's right. You it, it becomes so sensitive to everything that it's a good barometer of yeah. what of what is happening there. I, I always say if uh, if we're heading for arm again, cotton would already be there. Yeah. So we're not. And so what is going on in China specifically? There's a there's a there's a couple of different moving parts specific to cotton, in Eastern China, Xinjiang Province, where the bulk of their production is, is there's a current, uh, I'm gonna just use the term like kerfuffle. The Chinese claim that everything's perfectly okay. The rest Can of the world- you eat says, a kerfuffle? Uh, if you fry it. Okay, all right. All right. So uh, the, 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 the Chinese claim that everything's perfectly okay, the rest of the world is saying no, you've got labor camps, you've got child labor, the human rights, it's, it's horrible. So underway, today as we're, as we're speaking, the global uh, clothing environment is, we will take no cotton from Xinjiang, and we will take no yarn, fabric, gray goods that, in, that have any Xinjiang cotton in it. So that puts the, the Chinese in a very peculiar situation in that their biggest producing area can't be used for exportable goods. Right. But they're a net importer regardless, so they can convert and use Xinyon cotton domestically. Okay, that's the specific cotton side. They're building back up their strategic reserve cotton. The Chinese have strategic reserve for corn, for soybeans, for wheat, for energy, right. for cotton. Right. So they're starting to rebuild that now, so there's a demand in the market. As we sit here today, cotton is trading for 99 cents in China, and we're like at 72 Okay, so they've got tariffs about against bringing stuff in. Now, there is no tariffs on the yarn. So yarn importation to China is rampant. And so you get markets like Bangladesh, India, uh, Pakistan, they're all buying US cotton, converting it, selling it into China. Now, while all this cotton stuff is going on and we see it, we see the flows, we see what's going on. What you have is a macro shortage of calories. So if you go back, 15, 20 years, the average person in China ate animal protein once or twice a month. Right, I think Today, this is the most important thing that's going
1: on over there that people don't right. understand.
2: Yeah, let's Today, go. they eat protein four or five times a week. Right. Now, that seems like a big chump and it is, but here's the real fulcrum. It takes between 10 and 12 units of vegetable protein to be converted into animal protein. So when you go from twice a month to four times a week, it's an exponential increase in the demand requirements for vegetable protein to be converted to poultry, to, to swine, to cows. And so that leverage, because they've gone into such a a massive demand has caused them to import grains. Now, sure. The phase one deal, they've got to buy from us if they're going to stay in line, but they need it more than that. There's a, Last year, they suffered through the the uh, African swine f- uh, fever that killed half of their crop yeah. of of pigs. Half their, so, half their pigs. Yeah, half. And when you consider that that amount, that what they to replace that amount, every other hog producing country in the world would have to ship their entire inventory to China. Well, now you've got uh, Germany ASF showing up in Germany, other parts of
1: Europe, so we've got struggles all over the globe now related to ASF and they're still in need of the hogs and which means they're in need of the, the protein that goes into uh, to, to raising. Right. Them.
2: We saw the, the DG demand. So, you know, the, 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 what's left over after you make ethanol, the DGs, they were buying those for ever. They were, they're just sucking everything over there. Then they they killed off half their herd and now they're rebuilding. And so they're starting that demand is coming back at the same time though that the, their crop. They had seven typhoons come up the Yangtze River Valley this year, right. and wiped out a, a large swath of their crops. So, China is really in a pickle. They need our calories, um, and so then when we look forward and say, okay, well, what does that mean for you know the future? You know, we can argue about whether cotton prices or corn or wheat are going to go up or down or soybeans right now, but we know there's a there's a rising demand in the future, and it's 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 a given. They're going to have more people next year than they will this year. The the demand for food is going up, both for human and animal consumption. And there's questions over what they're going to grow. So some people feel that they're going to change over their production in Xinjiang from cotton over to wheat because they can grow it in the desert environment. Okay, that's fine. But that just means more demand for U.S. cotton. So if you're going to get, if you're going to grow more U.S. cotton, you're going to have to. It's going to have to be price competitive. Right. Well, when you look at the price of soybeans for next season compared to the price of cotton for next season, cotton's got to go up above eighty-five, ninety cents to compete just to get acres under the ground.
1: Right.
2: So that's that's where we're looking at from this standpoint, and trying to make sure people understand the macro side as well as the fact that yeah, we were up, you know, we we're up double digits today, and the market looks like it's going to you know continue to rally.
1: I uh, pulled up a piece from your newsletter today that I want to read to everybody here because I think it's, it's actually really, really important. And uh, uh, maybe Allie will be able to figure out a way, marketing will be able to figure out a way to get this on online for us. But uh, you said, regardless of where global demand may originate, the fact that American farmer can produce more from less, especially with a weaker dollar, will give the U.S. a huge advantage in the world's agricultural marketplace into the future. Can you uh, can you expand on that a little bit and uh, just tie it really ties in with
2: what you just said? Yeah, I was referring to a chart that I uh, found. Um, it was actually put in on a LinkedIn post from the guy that runs Harris Ranch Feedlot out here in Coalinga. Uh, yeah, uh, it's one of the biggest West Coast feedlots, and he was. The, the chart shows going back to 1948 the trend of input costs versus yield, and what it what, what it shows is that the input cost is less today in 19, than it was in 1948, but the U.S. farmer produces three times as much food on the same inputs. Yeah. And my point to that was, competitively, we still have the advantage globally. So whether, regardless of what crop you have, good, bad, or ugly, up, down, or sideways, the macro underlying demand, we're gonna be more competitive to sell our cro- to sell our goods overseas now with the us dollar coming down in strength we we're going to have even higher demand because in foreign currency terms our goods are less expensive right so just as we're more efficient we're able to produce more at, for less of a cost we have a greater demand so to me that's a that paints a pretty bullish profile out there i think that makes perfect
1: sense. And the, yeah, the weakening dollar is uh, on everyone's concern, you know, concern list, inflation. And I think it uh, really segues into the next topic I want to bring up is, all right, so we've got, we're armed with all this information, you know, Bill's writing the economic piece. If you're deeply involved, you've got yourself, uh, you know, focusing on cotton. But let's just think about this related to risk management and how it relates to the bottom line. Of both a commercial operation all the way down to a uh, to a, a local farmer is what can they what can people be doing to mitigate the potential risks associated with inflation? I mean, earlier today I was on a call actually earlier this week, excuse me, on a call with a company that uh, produces well they use lumber in a, as a part of their large projects. And Guess what? If you look at a lumber chart,
2: they got killed.
1: You got killed. It's through the roof. They're trying to price their lumber uh, as a part of the job. and they're off base. The spread is way more than they had budgeted for because well, they didn't they didn't risk manage or put a hedge in place. And you know, not a lot of people did. But let's just apply this back. you know what what are your thoughts on how a commercial operation or a, a individual can can really step into these markets, and manage this inflationary risk that is staring us
2: all down, down, you know, staring us all down? I I think, you know, the traditional answer would be, oh, you've got a hedge. You've got a hedge. Right. Um, But I think conditions today are so much different that hedging basic, you know, we just buy the bail, sell the board. That kind of hedging doesn't work anymore simply because the outside market forces now are driving the bus. If you will, we say the specs got more money than the trade got Cotton. Yeah. <laughs> so so hey, is, you, that a, is that a Lawson's law? No, well, that's one of Lawson's laws. Yes. Okay, so, I
1: know we've got a couple of them. So all right, that's the first one at least. So that's
2: one. So. yeah, and in a time when when the markets are indifferent, when, when the speculators are indifferent and, and don't really have a, a, a long or short side opinion, then the fundamentals alone can drive the markets. Supply, demand. It becomes really a simple formulaic move but when you input into that when and this is where we try to help out our clients the outside pressures then it changes the dynamics significantly so instead of hedging your buy the bales sell the board hedging with futures we are begging people and instructing and have finally got people to understand to use options instead of futures now firmly believe this i can prove it on paper i can prove it in actual performance You can do anything with options that you can do with futures. But there's things you can do with futures that you cannot do with options. So the ironic situation is when a person first starts to learn about risk management, they learn how to trade futures before they learn how to trade options because an option on a futures contract, right? Right. But in reality, you want to start with options. Right. And you have an opportunity to be wrong without getting killed right. in the market. Right. So it, it gives you some, some flexibility. It allows you to take protection without commitment. And a lot of times, that's more than anybody else is looking for in the first place. They just want some protection. It's like insurance. If, uh, you, know, if, if you didn't have car insurance, you know, would you have to buy a second car in case you wrecked one? Right. Right. But you have insurance. Well, that's what options are to futures, right? You don't have to lock in on a futures contract long or short. You have an option. So now it's your choice, not your obligation. Uh, I think that's, those are really points well taken. As
1: uh, so you, you think about where the futures and options markets have evolved to, it's, it's not just a, a, a basic strategy. It's a necessary strategy and yourself, ourselves, myself, I'm out talking to banks and producers on a regular basis, trying to help them all understand the importance that you have to budget for this in your in your operation. And uh, you know, there's a couple of different ways to do it. You can utilize the futures and options by opening up futures and options accounts, but you can also accomplish a lot of this sometimes through cash contracts or over-the-counter swaps and there's there's so many different tools available to again both the the, the merchants and the commercials as well as producers today. That I think that uh, people really need to have uh, uh, you know all these
2: tools available uh, in their toolbox. Right, and and I and I you know, we can on another on another broadcast go through the uh, the ways that we teach guys how to how to understand options. There's a few stories we can tell that really bring it home and uh, and I, I just you know encourage people to do, read about it talk about it and probably the most important step in understanding options is to teach it and it's when you teach that you learn the most and so what i always say is if you're going to get out and talk about puts and calls and i say this and I say this with all respect get out the crayons uh-huh. get colored markers okay And then whenever you're talking, and then write down what you're reading for your understanding. And whenever you're talking about a long call, owning a call, use one color. When you're going to be short the call, use another color. Long the put, short the put. The colors tend to force your brain into having a better understanding. And so when you start being able to talk the language that comes along with the game, you your mind already has the understanding because you've used these colors it it is an absolute proven fact that works well so and so what you do is you do it on you do it on paper you use get out the crayons and as soon as you believe that you've got it halfway understood go teach your kid right teach your wife teach your girlfriend teach your boyfriend teach your dog I don't care when you explain it to them all of a sudden it clicks in your head. It just, it, it's, it's magic. It just, and I, I don't know why I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a brain doctor. I just know that when you teach things, think about it in your life, when you try and explain things to people, you understand them better. So that's one of the first steps I suggest people take when they start looking at options. The only thing I can guarantee in the options market is that time decay will eventually take away part of the value of the option premium. It's a guarantee. It's an absolute. So what I explain is you want to, if you're going to buy an option, it gives you the flexibility, the choice, but you have to pay for that choice over a period of time. If you're right on the direction of the market and the time decay takes away from that value, my suggestion is sell another option that that time decay adds to your position. So you're losing time decay value on one hand, it's, uh, it's helping you on the other. So now you've eliminated that from the, from the whole program. Now you're looking at just volatility and you're looking at price direction.
1: Yeah, and you know, a lot of uh, risk managers out there and customers that I've talked to and I'm sure people you've dealt with, they've received advice that they need to set a floor as markets are rallying, like we're seeing right now with commodities inflating, uh, whether it's corn, beans, almost at $11, cotton, over 70 cents. If you're growing the crop, you need to set the floor because your insurance, you have a, a big gap to where your insurance actually kicks in. Right. So a lot of people suggest to buy an option. Well, if you just buy this option, you run the risk that you're just spending money and you don't necessarily have, uh, you, know, you could easily finance a portion of that purchase through the selling of options. Now, it's a, con- it's a can be complex for a lot of people, but the same thing uh, it, it becomes very important for people to to understand. Now, can you just real quick before we leave this topic, you flip it to somebody who's actually consuming cotton right now. You know, they are trying to be competitive in the world, whether it's uh, you know a, a Levi Strauss or uh, Abercrombie and Fitch. They needed to buy cotton, or if they were uh, general mills, buying corn. Prices were very deflated post-COVID or during COVID. Many people at that time should have been thinking forward thinking and buying protection of inflation. Can you talk uh, from, from the uh, commercial side just real fast?
2: Sure. On the commercial side, you, you have a little bit on the long side of a little bit of, a, uh, of an advantage in that you can – buy calls which protect against the market going up. You can set a ceiling. The most you're going to have to pay. And now you got a budgetary uh, backstop to push against. So to sell an option against that, there's two different ways to look at it. You can sell a put below the market, take in the time value that will start to decay. And then if the market goes down and you end up buying the product at a lower price, well, you budgeted here but because the market went down, now you're buying it here. Oh, okay, that's a windfall. Now, the other hand, you can buy a call to protect against the market going up or you could s- and sell a higher price call. So that, that what you're selling up here helps pay for your protection. In the worst case scenario is the market goes up through your price, you're protected, and then this is all profit on the upside now in reality we i will say 90% of the time it's not always a rising market will show a shrinking basis so while the futures markets are going up that cash position that you're protecting isn't following as fast right so selling the calls above the market where normally that's not such a good idea because <laughs> there is no there is no top to up Right? right? So, But as the market goes higher, you're able to have a stronger cash basis, a weaker cash basis against the stronger futures. So you'll make more on the call spread, then your prices will increase on the cash market. So those are the kind of strategies we tailor to the specific need of the, of the market participant, whether they're net long, net short. Then here's just a simple thing that, that I try to say to people. Sometimes they get caught up and, oh my God, I, how am I going to hedge this? I'm obligated to buy that, but I've sold this on my order book. And it's really simple. It's really simple. How much, how long, which way? Right. That's it. Those three questions. What is your net exposure? How much? Right. Over what period of time? And this is the most difficult one for most people. What direction does the market move hurt you? Because often we deal with the merchant community. They're buying and selling and sometimes the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. Right. Often in a, in a very fully integrated, say, say, for instance, you were a big uh, denim manufacturer, your purchase orders and your selling orders, you know, you may not have two guys that are looking at the same thing. So you need to know what your net risk is, how much, how long, which way. If you can tell me that, I can build you a, a, a hedge, a risk management scheme that'll, that'll benefit you in the long run. But I'm hopeful on and you know and
1: again putting this podcast together thinking about the importance of people's bottom lines and their margins and their businesses is that you know any sort of preconceived notion that people had in the past that uh risk management was you know just kind of for the birds or for the old the old school gets actually reinvented back to the new generation of people that are involved in these commodity markets You know, people coming out of school today are taught to evaluate budgets and margins. And, you know, this notion of utilizing financial markets to hedge or risk manage may or may not have been something that they learned. And most of the cases, not. Mm -hmm. So it becomes us, you know, I, I might not have as many gray hairs, but I've been doing this long enough to know that financial markets provide... A, a vehicle and a mechanism for people to mitigate and manage risk across all commodities. And I would hope that, you know, the people you're talking to, your newsletters, the reach that you have uh, can get more people's hands so that that becomes more prevalent across across all industries.
2: That's what we're hoping. A lot of what we do is educate. And, and I can tell you we're at a cusp right now in the, in the cross crossover between technology and, and commodities. Similar in a way, when I was in college, back when I was at university, it was a transformation in agriculture where your value as a farmer, your, your what you were measured up against in your community, what was your yield? Yeah, that's all they counted. What right. was your yield? Right, right. And he's a he's an eighty bushel guy. Ah, he's only a seventy bushel guy. Right. That was your measure of, uh, of. he didn't put enough water on. Did you see? He didn't run his sprinkler. Yeah. Right. So. I remember being in class in an agricultural economics course and a very smart guy professor. And, and he goes, I want you all to forget about the best farmer you know. Forget about it. Here's what counts. What how much money did he bring home at the end of the year? Yes, sir. So at that, it was, it was a revelation to me because I grew up in farming and knew that this, you know, this guy was this his, this guy's dairy herd. This is, you know, had 80-pound difference. You know, this guy was he was so many bushels, this guy put a and now all of a sudden is well, yeah, he 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 may be the have the highest yield, but the lowest net return because he just poured on and wasted a bunch of fertilizer. Okay, right. so we're at that same you now. Flash ahead, forty years, fifty years, and now we're at a situation where it's not your net return, it's your risk management that guarantees you a return at the at the highest what I call sleepability factor, yeah. right? Right. You, it, it's, it's not quite this simple, but there's formulas. If you follow, you will grow a good crop. If you do what's right, you can literally you can go online, find out what to do, how to do it. But what you do with that product, that's where the effort needs to go in these days. And it, because there's so many different choices and different options for guys to utilize, that's now they got to reach out instead of to the to the extension advisor at the UC farm system Right. Now they're going to reach out and say, tell me how do, how do I manage the risk on this crop going forward?" right so, similar type of shift, little quantum shift there and and i'm I'm just proud to be able to say I've been through these shifts and still standing. so you know, what can we do to help people? Well, you could serve them some wine, I guess. Yeah, someone's got to live here. We got houses and stuff around, you know <laughs> like I told you earlier, the rumor has it, there's wine deserves drinking in these parts. Or well, once COVID, uh kind of settles
1: down, uh, it's your first stop on the on the on the list for me. I got to get out there and you uh, show me around. Dude. I can't believe you're showing telling me about the ashes flying. Uh, you yeah, know, so you're on the Rotary. The Club. Yeah. you're on the Rotary Club. You're the president of the Rotary Club, and yeah. I read that uh, you guys are kind of leading the effort in Sonoma right now to kind of fight, fight, fight the fires or fight the. You know, explain to
2: me what's going on. Well, it started back in 2017 when we had the fires here. They, they got pretty close, a couple blocks from our house. And what we did at the time was we took our farm out here. We had a large uh, facility that we were able to accept donations. Oh. And in four months, we took in over a million dollars in donations and goods and distributed them to the people that were hurt. And uh, it was you know, giving the first responders that were working in uh, – gift cards to the local stores to try and increase the velocity of money within the community so they could hire people keep them working and and we did a pretty good job and then uh, it was a model that was taken on by a number of other communities so this last go around that they've had uh, it's been a it's been a terrible thing all these fires are uh, very unfortunate we won't get into the political side of it up or down but um, the net the net difference this time is, In 2017, they lost 9,000 homes in one town, Santa Rosa. Wow. This year, they've had the biggest per square mile fires. Very few, very few homes are lost, right? 900 structures all told. Now, yeah, some big wineries, some very fancy hotels. It's terrible. There's no no way around it. But when you look at the amount of human uh, problems created, in reality, it, it pales compared to what happened in 2017. So, we're helping where we can. Uh, hopefully, the fires—you know—we're not out of—we're on red right as we speak. We're in—we're a, in a red fire alert because of the winds coming in, and we'll need a good soaking to to solve this. And uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed. So. Yeah, we're we're hoping for you guys out there. It's uh,
1: wild times out here today. Uh, Colorado's fires hope to get a little bit All of right. a damper because of some snow that's coming through, and other things but uh yeah wow wild times well you keep up the good work out there um i guess to wrapping things up i got a couple rapid fire questions all here right. for you if, uh, if you're up for it um so, so, are you ready yeah bring it uh, all right so since you are in sonoma white or red wine uh, i prefer sonoma reds and apple whites okay is there a certain uh uh you know you're talking pinos or
2: cabs or what do you go for And yeah, the Pinots in the southern end of the valley, you get all the bay bay breezes, the San Francisco breeze, so they're a little light, little, little, they're nice, get the heavy iron red soils up valley and they're a little more body to them. Um, Over in Napa, you know, we always say here in Sonoma, we have great wine in Napa, they make good auto parts. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, they do a nice job on the whites over there. They'll they'll claim the reds are better, but uh, that's just my personal preference. All right. That's
1: good. Yeah, I'm a Pinot guy. I'm definitely a big fan. But uh, if I was sitting there with you, I'd drink whatever you're serving. Um, Favorite garlic-based food? I read one time there is uh, garlic ice cream. You know, the garlic
2: festival was a wonderful thing. It It was created to raise money for local nonprofits. and that's all it does and the way they do it is they you have a booth or you have your food you you pay for the booth to the school to the to the garlic festival Uh, you pay percentage sales and they take the money and that's the seed money for the following year and what they do is they all the volunteers put in their hours so the boy scouts the girl scouts you name it and then they divide up the number of hours over the profit and they give you that so it's all for earning money With the exception of beer sales. Okay. So now it's alcohol sales as well. They sell in a three day event more than a million dollars in alcohol. Wow. So the garlic there they came up with, you know, they've got garlic, everything. My favorite is uh, Gilroy garlic steak sandwich and um, tri tip bell peppers and onions cooked down. Uh, They take the bread, they toast it on the fire. And then they dip it into the butter and garlic that's been warming on the fire. They put on the, the meat. They put on the veggies. And, and wow. if you do it right, it runs down your arm just just nice. So that's right. a garlic steak sandwich.
1: That sounds pretty good. I have a couple of issues with garlic. Uh, one is that I love it so much that my wife doesn't let me sleep in bed with her after I've eaten enough of it.
2: You got it. Both both parties have got to enjoy it. That's just part of the game.
1: I don't know what it is,
2: but she says that it uh, kind of secretes through my pores, and so I don't know. But no, she's right. If you take if you take a clove of garlic and rub it on your on your the soles of your feet, you'll smell it on your breath. And the reason <laughs> is, this is the scientific side, it attaches to the red blood cells that are oxygenated in your lungs. Okay. And the active attractant is called dialyl thiasulfonate and it's actually in the old days was used as a low grade sulfur drug okay but that's you know that's that's garlic wow. Wow. That's I, it. I
1: mean i can't go wrong with garlic bread so uh i'll put no. that at the top of my list to start all right last one is uh what is your favorite extreme sport that you either participate in or wish you could whether it's in this
2: life or another one this is a simple one For uh, from the time I was uh, 17 till the time I was 32. I played the game that they play in heaven. Rugby. Ah. Uh, I was fortunate to play at a very high level, represent the United States. Uh, If I could still play, I would still play. And uh, as they say, soccer is a, uh, uh, a gentleman's game played by ruffians. And rugby is a ruffian's game played by gentlemen. I consider myself a gentleman, fun uh, fond memories traveling around the world playing. I got many associates in foreign countries uh, that I know through rugby. And I will tell you in Australia where uh, it's, it's a sport. It's a religion. Australian similar, rules. Yeah. yeah so um, that's, it helped me in my business. They grow a lot of cotton down in Australia. And so, yeah, so the rugby is my, uh, my athletic drug of choice. That's good.
1: Well, I, uh, I've guessed, too, I was uh, not prepared for your rugby comment. I, I play lacrosse myself and still play today. Uh, you know, I'd love to get out on the rugby pitch with you if you wanted, willing to give a couple throws with me. But
2: um, we'll have to do okay. that the, closest, the closest I can come to a rugby performance anymore is in the after party. I'm, okay. good, I'm really good at that.
1: <laughs> well, you bring the wine and uh,
2: somebody else will bring the football. All right. Sounds like a plan. All right, sounds I look forward good. To Doing some More of these, you know, we'll do a, uh, an options one-on-one to get people to take them from square one to, uh, you know, to actual training. We'll do that down the road. And, uh, yeah, look forward to doing some more of these uh, in the future.
1: I think that's what we do. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, to get out the crayons and the markers and maybe a whiteboard or two and see if we can put some stuff together that way. And, um, yeah, get, get some feedback. Maybe we'll do a live event where we can, uh, uh, get some people asking questions that might work. Um, yeah, That's no, this has been fun, Ron. I appreciate taking the time and being the first uh, participant in the Hedged Edge. And, um, you know, we're going to get together here sooner than later, hopefully once this COVID deal is over. But. Yeah, sounds great. All right, Ron. Thank you much. See you. You've been listening to The
0: Hedged Edge. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at ag underscore RCM, like our Facebook page under RCM Ag Services, and visit our website, read our blog, and subscribe to our newsletter at rcmagservices.com. If you like our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear them.